Okay. Ready to get going. Yeah, we meet again. We meet again. Um, okay, so today we're going through um, the book called Effortless by Greg McEwen. Um, and I guess this is podcast episode number two. Um, mm. The Mindful Reading Podcast is what we've changed the name to. <laughs> so each each week we'll, or each month we'll have a new name. Um <laughs> But yeah, so reading through Effortless, um, yeah, I think it was a, a nice book to read through, so we'll discuss it a bit now. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to start with a book summary. That no, go with the book summary, okay. then I'll latch on okay, to what you said. semi-formal <laughs> book summary, uh, so we'll see how it goes. Okay, so Effortless, as it says on the cover, is about making it easier to do what matters most. Put differently making it easier to do the essential things and the hard to th do things pointless. You want to make the, the essential things easy, the hard to do things pointless. And then the book looks at various situations where people take different um, paths, so difficult paths and various situations where people take an effortless path. And so in some sense, the book's claim is that often we equate success with working hard mm. and working endless hours but it doesn't have to be that way. And as the title of the introductory chapter says, not everything has to be so hard. Because, yeah, we, we tend to make things crazy hard. In other words, often, there's an effortless way. So that effortless term is obviously going to come up a lot because hence the title. Um, and, yeah, so carrying on, whether that's solving a challenging problem or generating wealth or dealing with difficult, the difficulties of being a human being, again, not everything has to be so hard. So the book is split into three main parts, the effortless state, effortless action, and effortless results. Yeah. And the effortless state is how we can make it easier to focus. And then it goes on or sort of to summarize that. How can we make, how can we get to that effortless state? So we should think along the lines of what some people call the flow state and then where we don't feel continuously that we're fighting this uphill battle, but rather we feel that we're in a flow state. He, he has a sort of little sentence there that says where we feel rested, at peace and focused. So that's kind of that effortless state. Then going on to the second one, effortless action, that's how can we make essential work easier to do? So how can we make the work we do, the actions, effortless, where it's easy to do what matters? Um, and so that's about simplifying the process to make the work itself easier to do. So looking at the, the process that we take along the way. And then effortless results is what it sounds like. But that's about how can we get the highest return from the least in investment? So how can we get those effortless results that is getting um, results without continued effort. So those results are what Greg, the author, calls residual results. Um, think along the lines of automation and especially compound interest. So that's one of those ones that I often think back to. It's not just about compound interest, but the idea of compound interest, interest is, is very much sort of the general idea of those effortless results. So not having to continually put in that effort. Um, so we should use what he calls levers that give us leverage to get residual results. And he mentions uh, five of these levers. So learning 
teaching, which is an interesting one. And then automating, trusting is another interesting mm. one. And then preventing. So that's preventative rather than um, reactive, I guess. Mm. Um, and then the effortless results section looks at those levers. And then lastly, so those are the three parts of the book. And I'm going to end with a sentence and a summary to sum up the book. Um, so the sentence goes, um, of course, you can't make everything in your life effortless, but you can make more of the right things less impossible, then easier, and then ultimately effortless. So just getting at that idea of like, how do we, because we think, oh, it's supposed to just be effortless from the start, but no. Um, And then the story goes like this. And I really like this story. It's just a great story. Uh, I basically just keep on going with stories. (laughs) Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Okay. So this is towards the beginning of the book. Uh, I think it's in the introductory chapter as well. Um, So the story goes... Discovering the effortless way of living is like using special polarized glasses while fly fishing. Without them, the glare on the water makes it difficult to see anything swimming below the surface. But then, as soon as you put them on, their angled surface filters filter out the horizontal light waves coming off the water, blocking that glare. Then, suddenly, you can see all the fish, the fish, <laughs> all the fish underneath. And um, When we're accustomed to doing things the hard way, it's like being blinded by the glare coming off the water. But once you start putting these ideas into practice, you'll start to see that there was an easier way all along, just hidden below your view. Um, Yeah, so I think that's a great, like, summary of the book, especially that story, because it's just that idea of we think things are just incredibly difficult, mm. but we just haven't found that way of approaching at that different angle. Mm. So, yeah. I don't know if you have additional things that yeah. you want to add. So, I mean, your summary was very comprehensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, there's just a few things I want to add, uh, especially from the first chapter. What really sold me on the book uh, when I started reading it was the whole concept of... Um, him saying that things don't have to be hard for mm. you to succeed. So, uh, I mean, that's a very um, uh, interesting um, train of thought because, um, you know, growing up, I think, oh, I, th- I don't know if you can relate, but we are accustomed to people telling us you need to work hard if you want to succeed in life. Mm-hmm. You know, they equate hard work to success, you know, Um but um, in essence, you know, it's about doing something with the least effort to achieve the same results, you mm. know. Um, and that's where effortless comes in, you know, being able to do those tasks that are deemed hard and the most efficient and, you know, less time-consuming or less strenuous ways, you know. I think yeah. that's really something that most people should live by. I think we so focused on, you know, the whole work hard, then you'll be successful part. Uh, yeah. Instead of, you know, what really needs to happen for me to achieve this so-called success. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, 
just going back to the summary, as you've said, you know, um, looking at the the different uh, parts of the book, you know, I'll have my somewhat summary, which you've <laughs> mostly laid out, you know, um, for the effortless state, you know, it's about being in that state where you don't have to work hard, but mm. you focus on really what matters for you to get the job done. You know, that's how I kind of, yeah. you know, pictured what that is. Um, and I mean, the concept used there, you know, like invert, you know, I think that's also very important when it comes back to, you know, working hard mm. versus, you know, doing the thing the best way you can, because it teaches you about asking the question regarding a problem differently. So I, I thought mm. that was really important, you know, instead of you asking the normal question or well, what needs to be done, you know, it's like, how easily can I get this job done? You know, yeah. it it's, takes about uh, just rewarding whatever question you have regarding something to make it feel differently. And I mean, with that, that reminded me about, um, I think it's in Atomic Habits where they talk about a smoker or how you identify. And um, if someone um, used to smoke or are trying to quit yeah, smoking, to stop, yeah. yeah, instead of saying, I'm a smoker that's trying to stop, mm. you know, it's like... Invert. <laughs> you know, I used to <laughs> yeah. smoke, you know. Like it's as simple as those tweaks you know that makes a really big difference you know? yeah that's like that identity thing yeah like instead of being i am a smoker you're like no i, I, I don't I, smoke i yeah, don't yeah. smoke you yeah. know and i mean that identity is the same with, yeah. with whatever we do you know if you identify something i know we're using it if you identify something as hard and requires hard work and you tell yourself it's hard work then it will be hard mm. but if you turn that around to be like this needs to be done i will enjoy doing it and it no longer seems as hard work and that goes with in the listed you need to enjoy what you do that's mm -hmm. just picking a few and then with effortless um action um it's literally getting things done with the minimum path of resistance essentially mm. you know um i think um I remember my previous job that 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 was always a point of contention because um people hated you taking the path of least resistance mm. but I mean reading this book it's you're encouraged to do um to take the path of least resistance but I think maybe the caveat where people miss or don't really say out loud is that if you pick that path of least resistance, you need to at least put in some prep time so that you have that path of least mm. resistance. Because if you don't do that, then you might take that path without really understanding what you need to do. And as that chapter starts off, it talks about defining what it is you're doing. Mm. And I mean, only if you understand what the end goal is, you know, can you take that path of least resistance? Because then you do all you need to do to get to that end goal. With Because if you don't define it, you'll be like, I'm taking the path of least resistance, but where are you 
going with that path you know only mm. if you understand that end goal then you know do you understand what the best path of least resistance is so that's just to touch on effortless action and as for the last point which is effortless results and you you said um the teaching part was interesting yeah, um very but to me i think i can also relate you know the uh, with before you teach you have to prepare you know and mm. through that allows you to go over the material whatever it is you're about to teach over and over again and by the time you deliver not only are you delivering to an audience you're pretty much telling it back to yourself mm. meaning that you've gone through multiple instances where you've gone through or covered that material mm. meaning that it then sticks in your head and as a result becomes effortless to not only teach that but do what it is that you're teaching so yeah that's pretty much some of the things that I added to my summary of the book you know based on the three parts it's nice. broken into yeah yeah i mean i i 100% agree and i think that that idea of teaching is just uh, even just the idea of stories in general which is why i like the the a lot of the stories the, in the, mm. in this book i think when when you were talking about the invert um part i think there's a story at the beginning of the the book where they I can't remember, I'll paraphrase the story. So, <laughs> yeah. um, lots of grains of salt, yeah. But so where they, there's the lecturer who, I think it's a lecturer who get who asks someone to do the a recording of the oh, yes. of the um, lecture. Of a some, lecture, Something yeah. along those lines. And you can go along the line of all of this setting up a massive production and mm. making sure that they have like serious audio mm. stuff and the lighting is good and all these kinds of things and sit, making sure you have the right, I don't know, streaming platforms. Yeah. And no, I think in this case, it was someone that was, I think, in like the film or media department. So they wanted them to set up a whole rig and for mm. spend time in recording this lecture, but yeah, go on. Yeah, so they they like you have this option of mm. doing this incredibly fancy thing, mm. which possibly is the right way to go mm. if the audience is millions of people. Mm. But what they needed to do is they needed to say, okay, well, wait, who is this for? Mm. Um, and when they asked that question, because they didn't just make the assumption like, oh, okay, of course I need to do all this fancy mm. stuff. They said, okay, well, let me change this around and just first get who this is for mm. and then I'll look at it. Mm. And it turns out that it was actually just for one student who couldn't attend the class or mm. something along those lines. And the answer was just to set up a, I don't know, I think it was like a phone, phone or something yeah, like that. One just, the students just record recording. it and then send it off to them. And that was good enough. Mm. Um, and not just was it good enough, it was, the, in my opinion, the, the perfect solution for for that situation. Mm. Um, Not only, I mean, if you really think about it, it was probably the least intensive or didn't require a lot of effort, cost effective. So there's a lot of things mm. that we overlook when we want to do something because I think we only look at the end effort, but there's actually a lot that's actually involved for something to be delivered. Like, yeah. like for instance, we overlook what's the cost you know mm. um what are you sacrificing mm. to, in order to get that done and i mean by identifying again goes back to what i was saying if you define 
mm. you know what it is you're doing because in that case they didn't properly define they were just like this is what we need but didn't go down to the bottom of it to be like what's my audience who who's yeah who's the audience like um, do i need the lights or the equipment to make a perfect video yeah. you know is who is it going to because it have been different if it was let's say content that was going to be monetized or something that mm-hmm. was going to sell or it would be part of um his lecture content but in this case it was as you said just delivering content to mm-hmm. someone that wasn't in class that particular day because they're sick yeah. but you know because they did not understand initially there wasn't that context then it was like oh i've got mm-hmm. this job you know i need to call all out but in turn all they needed to do was some sort of video that yeah. needed to be given to the student um yeah yeah and and i think a, a last point there is also that people often perceive that as oh you're taking the easier route you sort of i don't know skimping or yeah, you yeah, yeah. Um, not working hard and things like that and i think there's a big difference obviously and I, Greg touches on this quite a bit, mm. um, but where it's not about not working hard at all. Mm. It's just that we often work hard at things that we don't need to work exactly, hard at. Exactly, yeah. Like in that case, and, and I mean, sure, you can justify, let's say, for example, that person did go off and, and make a massive production mm. out of it. They could have justified that by saying, yeah, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily worth it there, mm. but it taught me a lot of skills. Yeah. And that's not to discount that that would have been true, but it's just that often, let's say you have those skills, you may be a master video editor and film producer and stuff like that. To go and spend hours of your life setting up and recording that lesson wasn't worth it. Mm. So it's not to say that don't work hard at all. Mm. And it's not to say that when you work uh, when you take the easy path, you sort of um, slacking or mm. something like that. It's just being smart about. The, I, I was about thing. to say it's it's about again. I think you touched on this when you did your summary about working hard on what's necessary. The whole mm. you discard the pointless stuff, or rather, make the pointless stuff easy. But what matters. You put effort in what matters. So mm. people will look at it as, oh, you, they look at what you've put in at the end, not realizing that you were able to break down the different sections that needed to get this done. And instead of you applying the same effort throughout the project, you only put the much needed effort in what really needs that effort. Mm. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, for instance, I know probably I'll butcher this if there are people in construction that uh, listen to this. Is they said do not ski like the foundation, mm. you know, because you can do the rest quickly, but you need to make sure your foundation is solid, mm. you know, because then in turn, what would happen is if you were to put the same effort in your foundation as the rest of the building, then yes, you probably would have like such a concrete structure, but probably that's not the best approach. Mm. You need that solid foundation, but going onwards, you just need to do your level best to get your building complete. Mm. You know, and I believe it's the same with when you're given a task at hand. It's the only way and 
this is just what I believe, the only way you're able to take the path of least resistance is after you've taken time to understand what matters and you put effort into that before you actually start working on what you need to work. And when you get to those points, because you were able to do that prep work, it seems as if it's easy for you to do that stuff, but you've already done the groundwork. Mm. Just pretty much finishing it off in terms of action. So I think there's a bit of um, misconception, <laughs> if mm. I may say, you know. Um, and again, it's just, I think people just hate to feel as though people have it easy, you know. And yeah. I think it's also about perception. It can look easy, but doesn't necessarily mean that you did it easily. You know, because we just see the output, mm. but not never really see yeah, the input like behind that. Success people, exactly. Like, I don't know, but there's actually ten years that came before that. Before that, I mean, mm. same with an example. Can use let's say a play or a concert. Mm. You there for like an hour or that thirty minutes that artist is performing or those actors are acting for a play. But in actual sense, they probably had months of mm. rehearsals before that day. But then if the show is terrible or not, you judge them based on just that, that 30 minutes, that 30 minutes yeah. you're privileged to see. Mm. But discard all the blood, sweat and tears that came before that. Mm. You know, so I mean, if a production seems seamless and you're like, oh, I can put that together, it's Mainly because people have worked this themselves are, off yeah. to get to that point. Mm. Um, That's true. Mm. Yeah. Um, so um, a comment on what you said earlier about doing the, the important things mm. well. So interesting to note that the book before this, I believe, was called Essentialism. Essentialism. And so this book is almost like a follow-up to that book about... So you have this idea of what are essential things, and he draws down on that in that book. I haven't read the book, but that's, I believe, what what he's doing there. And then this is saying, how do we make those essential things effortless? So it's not necessarily that you have to make absolutely everything effortless, Mm -hmm. because in some sense, ironically, there's effort to make things effortless, kind of like you were alluding to. Mm. Um, But it is about trying to make the essential things effortless, and then the like we were saying in the, the introduction, the the pointless things difficult. So James Clear also touches on that in the Atomic Habits mm. thing about trying to create environments that make it hard to do the things that are bad and easy to do the the things that are good. I think he even has like a quote that says something along the lines of, um, "Imagine what the world would be like if." Um, if you had if the the good things to do were the easy things mm. um, I mean, that's definitely not a pe- <laughs> exact quote but, <laughs> but yeah we understand what you mean <laughs> yeah. I think I think so um, but yeah I think it's I think that's been a helpful introduction I don't know if you have any last points that you want to add for that introduction um, uh, no no um... Nothing okay. I can think of off the top of my head. Cool. Okay, so 
now we're going to get to our key points, key takeaways section. Mm. Uh, this is going to probably be the meat of it. Um, so in terms of, of key takeaways, there's obviously many gems in this book. We were literally saying that just before the, mm. the podcast started. Um, but we obviously can't uncover them all. And so um, I have some some of my favorite takeaways. Peter has some of his. And um, I don't know if you want to start with yours, Peter, or you, if you want me to start. No, go for it. Okay. So uh, from my side, the first one was about the ship of Vasa. So there's the story that goes, It's well, a brief summary of the story is it's about the ship and defining what done looks like or complete looks like. So I think it's an extremely powerful story. I'm going to read a condensed version of it, um, but definitely encourage you to read the, the full story in the book. Okay, so the condensed version. King Gustav II of Sweden embarked on an ambitious project to build a giant military warship, a warship that would redefine naval supremacy. That ship's name was the Vasa. But over time, the king's indecisiveness and ever-changing vision led to changes upon changes. From the changing of the ship's length to increasing the number of cannons, he even insisted on 700 ornate sculptures. The king's demands knew no bounds. There were so many changes that Heinrich Hebersen, the shipbuilder, is said to have died of a heart attack from all the stress. But still the project continued. Now, under Hendrik's, Heinrich's assistant, Hein Jakobsen. So finally, on the 10th of August, 1628, the Vasa, unfinished and untested, set sail from Stockholm, amid much fanfare, complete with fireworks, foreign diplomats, and pageantry. Then, a sudden gust of wind caused the mighty ship to tilt, and water rushed in through the open gun ports. In a mere 50 minutes, the Vasa sank, claiming the lives of 53 on board. So all this because the king had made this project almost impossible to safely complete by constantly redefining what done looks like. So in the book, there's a quote here that says, if you want to make something hard, indeed truly impossible to complete, all you have to do is to make the end goal as vague as possible. And then on the other hand, to get an important project done, it's absolutely necessary to define what done looks like. So I think you were somewhat touching on that earlier as well. Um, and then he goes on to, to say, to, or to talk about the light cost of tinkering, or the, sorry, the heavy cost of, t of light tinkering. So he says... Whether we're writing a book proposal, putting together a presentation for clients, building a ship, or doing anything else, tinkering can improve things significantly at first. But there comes a point when the law of diminishing returns sets in, a point where our efforts begin to outpace our improvements. So he says, I define what done is as the point just before the effort invested begins to be greater than the output achieved. So yeah, I think I think that um, that story about the Vasa is a really powerful story about trying to say, make sure that you define what done is, because mm. if you don't, you're probably gonna fail. Yeah. Mm. So, 
Yeah, I don't know if you have other thoughts about that. Um, yeah, no, like um, like you said, I touched on it before that you know so often we embark on something without having clearly thought what that really looks like. Mm. You know, um, <laughs> I will use the example. People would say, oh, I would like to get married. Um, but what does being married or family look like? Well, what are the dynamics that entail that? You know, um, that's just <laughs> one example. So, um, yeah, um, it's, it's very important to to really sit back and define those what done is or what mm. the end goal is because that also determines what paths you need to take or what you actually need to do. Um, mm. I mean, f- for instance, we, <laughs> weirdly enough, one of my things for this year was read 12 books, which is one a month. And mm. when we spoke this year, it was like, oh, let's, try record um, a book summary a month. If you really think about it, that's 12 bucks. Mm. Whether or not we get to it, <laughs> we hope so because life has just become chaotic. But Dan looked like 10 titles on a piece of paper yeah. or on a bookshelf that I can say those are books that I've read. You know, mm. m- my aim now is then to read a book a month. Mm. As hard as that may seem, but I'll try my best to read a book a month, you know. Mm. So, Dan is 12 books I've read. Yeah. How do I get there? I need to actually sit mm. down and read those 12 books. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's very easy, but it the fundamentals at the end of the day is the same, mm. you know. Um, I mean, just to go on as well, I think it was in the learning section. They talk about... Um, uh, the fundamentals of physics, the three principles of physics, yeah. Newton's law. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and that the, section with Elon and talking about also linking ideas together. And yeah, and I mean, if you saw, hopefully I can find it, but it he he was interested, I think, in documentaries, and he set out to say he will read a lot of documentaries, and at the end, with three categories, he came up with about. I think non-existent thing, biology and something. And in the end, they all related back to the first principle of physics, which say, or Newton's first law, which says to every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you really think about it, that's just the fundamental. You know, it goes back to the foundation. It is a building block. But if you apply, I mean, in physics... If you push something, it will roll up until whatever effort was put in is dissipated, mm. you know? So that's the reaction from whatever action has been imposed. Or if it's um, it's a solid thing, whatever force you put in is the force that object yeah. to push back on you. And same if you apply that in, to biology, human beings... Whatever action you do, someone most likely they'll react in a similar mm-hmm. way. So, meaning that if you act kindly to them, 
chances of them acting kindly back to you is pretty high. And if you mean to them, chances of them retaliating or being mean back is also very high. And if you think about it, it's still that same principle, you know? And I don't know where I was going with this, but but as I was saying, if you define something, then you know what the fundamentals required for it are. Mm. You know, if if I want people to treat me better, I need to solve in respect and treat others better. You know, um, so yeah, the there are many ways in which all this applies. You know, mm. it's just about what it is you choose and cling on to to make what's essential effortless, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, like, with most things, we we tend to to not want to to clearly define that, that done point because we, I don't know, we're scared or often we we think like, okay, no, but I want to achieve more or mm. want to do this. But if we just set that boundary of of understanding, and I think um, something that's sort of tying together with some of your thoughts is um, the, the boundary for done in the case of things like learning and stuff like that mm. is often we set this boundary of like, I want to know everything. Mm. But actually understanding those first principles that that's a helpful boundary to say okay let me first get that mm. and then once i've got that then i can i can build on that later but the boundary for me understanding some topic is to understand that first principle or, or those kind of things mm. and that helps us to to just generally think about things and um yeah but i think just especially defining for personal projects i've found is defining what done looks like and not making it some unbelievable stretch mm. goal just to be like, you know, I want to build this thing and I wanted to do this and that's it. Mm. Not adding a million features mm. because then you never end up finishing it, mm. the project. In fact, often you don't even really get started. Mm. Um, and I remember when I was younger, I used to think of, of some idea um, that we had this one idea, my, my friend and I, where we thought about creating um, this almost like a search engine like Google, um, but it was slightly different in the way that it's more a system that you can start plugging in things. So you can kind of think of a CMS, like a content management mm. system alongside Google, and you just have this massive repository of knowledge but you can tie into that knowledge in all these various ways and you can write your own. So if you wanted to do something, we would write a generic sort of module for mm. you, I guess. And then you'd be able to use that module to tie in and do specific things for you. So if we needed to do tax calculations or something like that, we would write this module and it's just this one time module mm. and everybody needs to do tax stuff. So then you just have this thing. Um, and then you other other things like if you wanted to process something in a standardized way, or, mm. and we would come up with these standards and things. And it was a an interesting goal, but the thing is, the goal just was so overly ambitious mm. that it was actually just an idea. And we thought we were cool because we were like, oh, you know, we have this like grand vision. Yeah. But the reality is, 
to do something like that, you actually have to say, okay, well, let's do this first little piece. And then once we're there, we, we done with that piece, but instead we wanted to just build absolutely everything. Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think <laughs> we're so consumed to having many ideas. Like you said, you want to build everything, but mm-hmm. I think in the end we become so overwhelmed that we don't even start. Yeah, we can't start because mm. we don't know where to. Mm. It's the same idea of uh, like the young entrepreneur. The young entrepreneur, there's a lot more hope for them. <laughs> Because they don't understand all the the difficulties involved. Mm. Whereas if you have this like experienced person, mm. it's really difficult to start a business because you know like, oh, flip, you know, we're going to have to manage the employees. We're going to have to do the salary stuff. We're going to have to do this insurance thing. We're going to have to do this thing. We're going to have to do that thing. Mm. And what about this and that? And um, there's just thousands and thousands of things that starting a business or doing almost anything... <clears throat> requires that we once we know them then we get overwhelmed by them Mm. but someone that's in a good way naive can can approach it and and they're just forced to take it step by step Uh, i'll touch on another story later Mm. but it's yeah it's an amazing amazing thing defining what done looks like how much it helps i think just to yeah sidetrack there or add um just reminds me of a few years ago i think um when we were still involved with uh propeller um uh, yes one <laughs> wow <laughs> um yeah the, there was the one lady that's um uh that mentioned that um when you're working on something, so it it's actually touching the done thing. Don't look as at the finish line as the end point. Look beyond. So it goes back to what defining done looks like. So defining done isn't, let's say, for instance, for, for that ship. Done wouldn't have been just, oh, we have a structure. And I think maybe that's what they focused on, right? That's why the king came with all the changes and all that stuff. Dan would have been them saying, will this thing actually sell? Because if they had clearly thought of what it takes for a ship to sell, then whenever he came with his requests, they would have a valid reason to push back Mm. on all his ambitious requests because he would come and be like, I want this and this and that. And they would, with fact or with some sort of evidence, come back to be like, we hear you, but if you really want this to sell, we can't do that. Mm. But instead, they wanted to please him and, you know, just add. And I mean, in today's world, I mean, we're in the same field, and that's the same trouble we face from clients. Thinking the same, yeah. <laughs> you know, they have these ambitious requests, and the moment we don't push back as developers to be like, we hear you, but it's overly ambitious, and try and actually 
create a solution for that. Then mm. we rather dig in ourselves a hole that now two years down the line when the project is not done yet, they then come back and be like, oh, but you're taking too long for this. You can then go back to be like, but we tried to cater for your overly ambitious, yeah. you know, requests. Um, so, yeah, um, look at what the finished product needs to be and, yeah, learn to push back, you know. Mm. That's one way of defining what, when something comes in, like, no, that's not what's in our done list, yeah. you know. Um, done doesn't mean you having the product. Done means having a project launched exactly. to the market, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're scared of that. <laughs> we like, I, I used to be more scared of it than I am now because mm. over time, and I think reading things like this helps, is to be like, oh, actually, the end goal is to have that product mm. launched. The end goal isn't to have this perfect piece mm. of software mm. because if you have this perfect piece of software that no one uses, it's pointless. pointless. Again, you might have learned something from it, and I'm not trying to negate that, but but at the end of the day, the goal of developing software isn't to develop software in some isolated bubble. Yeah. It's to develop software for a client. And create make, value. Exactly, to create value. Mm. And I think if you if you don't launch, I mean, it's been done over and over again. And again, I'll touch on it in a different story. But if you don't do that, if you don't finish it and say, I'm done now, I'm releasing this. It mm. might not be perfect, mm, mm. but I'm going to release it. Because mm. if you say, I'm going to get it to this perfect state, mm. what's going to end up happening is, as we saw with the ship of Asa, it's not going to end up perfect. Yeah. But it's also going to be so over bloated that it's just going to sink. Yeah. And um, and so, uh, yeah, getting that that definition is is critical. Um, and a, a last thing on that is um, when we were talking about um, being in the same field, and that I was thinking on university days, and that just the general idea of scope creep. Mm -hmm. So scope creep is inside of inside of our um, industry. It's a big thing. Yeah. I think it's slowly getting better and it depends. Maybe it's just because um, I'm slowly growing and yeah. learning to push back <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah. Um, but slowly people sort of understand that software is actually really mm. complex and adding these things is actually quite difficult. Maybe it's more difficult than it actually should be. Mm. And there, there should be easier ways of doing those things. But that's a, a separate <laughs> effortless discussion. <laughs> um, but that scope creep idea is very, very dangerous. Mm. And it's interesting to think about university and you have these very solid deadlines and at work as well. One of the things I really like about work and working for someone else and not working for myself mm. is that you have these sort of quite strict deadlines of like, this is when we need mm. this thing done. And you feel a bit of pressure, but you figure out ways of getting it done and stuff. And sometimes you miss the mark a little mm. bit. Sometimes you go a little bit earlier. It kind of depends on the situation. But for the most part, having that sort of deadline is super useful. Yeah. But then if you think about our own personal projects and just doing random things, not having that deadline mm. is like, you you just end up never, never doing the thing. Mm. Um, so... I think one, if we would ever do anything like start a, a business or anything like that, it's vital that you get that discipline mm. of saying, this is what done looks like. I guess I think maybe we have a lot to, 
to share about on what done. I think almost everything. Like we were saying, there's a lot of gems in this book. Um, it just also reminded me of, um, I think it was Jenna, right? Yeah. She always used to say, what are you selling? I don't know if you ever remember that. Oh, I'm terrible with memory. <laughs> and remember that, oh, gosh, the idea of the phone stand. Mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> <laughs> remember what she came up with on what Dan is? Not what Dan is or how she defined what the phone stand was. She somehow brought it down to certain convenience. Mm. If you remember, like the how conveniently you have your phone there, you know, and in an upright position where you can, you know, and so often when people create, you know, trying to sell something or get into business, they don't again <laughs> define what it is they want to sell at the end of the day. Mm. I think only after we understood. Because, I mean, there were so many branches that Stan was going into. But when she kind of rode us back to be like, this is what it is. You're going to market what you're selling, mm. et cetera, et cetera. That's when we sort of had a short-lived period where we actually worked towards something. And unfortunately, yeah, things didn't work. But in all our months of going there on Wednesdays, that was the only time where we kind of saw some sort of output. We knew exactly how the thing was going to be made and and, yeah. and because we knew what we're selling and sort of added a, or attached a value to what that thing was and what needed to be done. Yeah. Only after we had defined what actually the product was selling was actually doing. Yeah. You know, so it goes back power of definition yeah <laughs> no. absolutely true mm. okay should we move on to the next we next can point? move on to the next like, what is your do let, you have a, let's go with your points that are climbing because okay. it seems like probably mine are like all over the place so you cool. seem to have a system i'm happy if, I'm you, happy if you've that. missed some stuff then i'll yeah. bring my points afterwards awesome. Okay, so then story number two. Okay. So like I said, the three takeaways are three different stories. So it was that ship, that Vasa ship to okay. done. And then story number two is the plane and the courage to be rubbish. Okay. Exactly. I would have stepped on your toes because that was <laughs> so go for it. Okay, cool. So um, it's a slightly longer story, but it's worth mm. it. Um, so... In 1959, the Kramer Prize for building a human-powered aircraft was established and many had tried but failed. So now we enter Paul McCready, saddled with huge debt at the time. He didn't have time to save it. He didn't have a team and he didn't have um, all of this sort of wealth and money. The only thing he had was friends and family, including his young son, whom he enlisted as a test pilot. Meanwhile, his competitors were all staffed and well-funded, and they built big, complex, elegant airplanes with large wingspans and many wooden ribs and metal and heavy plastic casings. So these teams, even though they had all this stuff, 
they didn't come close to achieving the prize. So at first, McCready couldn't figure out why. Then it hit him. Everyone had been working to solve the wrong problem. The real challenge wasn't to build an elegant aircraft that could do a figure eight on the field around two platoons or sorry, sorry, pylons. Um, it was to build a large light aircraft, no matter how ugly it is, that you could crash, then repair, then modify, alter and redesign. And the key is that you could do that fast. That was when he suddenly realized that there was an easy way to do it. So McCready and his son immediately got to work on a model, inspired by one of the simplest, most aerodynamic mechanisms in nature, bird flight. Within two months, they were flying the first version of the Gossamer Condor. It weighed just 55 pounds, which is 25 kilos, and it looked amateurish, especially compared to the sleeker models that others had created. But that was exactly the point. McCready said, if it had crashed on the landing, you'd get a broomstick and you'd duct tape. You'd get some duct tape, then you'd duct tape the broomstick handle back on and you'd be flying in five minutes. That accident would have kept those other larger, more sophisticated teams from flying for something like six months. So a huge amount of flight experience was gotten out of this rapid, fast crash and then redo and crash and then redo and trying to figure that out. And over the course of just a few months, the Gossamer Condor made some 222 flights, sometimes several in a single day. Some of his competitors' machines didn't achieve that in their entire lifetimes. It was on its 223rd flight that the Condor completed the figure eight challenge and won the first Kramer Prize. Two years later, McCready would win the second Kramer Prize when the Gossamer Albatross successfully crossed the English Channel. His most brilliant insight wasn't some advanced breakthrough in the science of flight. It was simply that focusing on the elegance and sophistication of the aircraft was actually an impediment to progress. And then uh, the last thing that he says there is... Similarly to your own pursuit of what matters, if you want to build a better aeroplane, don't try and get everything exactly right the first time. Instead, embrace the rubbish, no matter how ugly it is, so that you can crash, repair, modify, and redesign fast. It's a far easier path for learning, growing, and making progress on what's essential. So yeah, I another great story that captures that spirit of fail fast and learn mm. um very similar in the software industry where we have this idea or especially in the new startup software world it's fail fast and so you basically launch the product mm. as soon as possible yeah um once you've got like even almost before an mvp mm. you launch the product and then you see what, how the market reacts to it and you learn and adapt from that. Um, yeah, I could go on for a while, but I don't know if you I want mean, to jump. To add with that, I think he, he speaks about the whole, if you, um, let's say, doing a course or something, you want to take a test, identify what you already know, <laughs> 
and then focus on the questions you failed because that's what you don't know. Mm. And it goes back to what you just said, fail fast. Um, but just to tie in, I mean, it's interesting how, you know, this chapter was titled Progress. And it reminded me of, um, I think, in Atomic Habits, it talks about procrastination. And, and the one concept of procrastination that still sticks still like yeah when i think of i'm like wow that's just interesting is that the reason people procrastinate is because they don't want to fail and that really comes in the way of progress like you say in for progress you need to fall for us you have to you know but if you procrastinate it's I think we sugarcoat what procrastination is, but the true essence of it is people don't want to fail. As a result, they're like, if I don't get the thing done, then I won't fail. Mm. You know? But that's what's needed for progress. Um, and yeah, I mean, with with that, you know, like you said, you know, that section after that story talks about, you know, start with rubbish, you know? Uh, and I mean, it talks about... Uh, former Pixar CEO that says mm. we all start out ugly. Everyone of Pixar stories start out that way. The earlier sketches are according to Katma awkward and unformed, vulnerable and incomplete. You know? Mm. Like I think we we generally just have a fear of how something looks. Yeah. And I mean, that takes many forms, like people's appearance and like all that, the work presented, you know. But what will make it what it needs to be if no one sees to offer that criticism? Mm. You know, do you tell you that fixed us? Yeah, if you don't get that feedback. If you don't get that feedback, mm. because you spend so long trying to create this amazing thing that by the time you get feedback which is like two days before launch you get this feedback back that then you don't have time to to correct it and i mean just that line we all start out ugly yes it seems harsh but when i read that line i actually thought of even as human beings or i was like even reflecting on myself you know who i am now, today, and who I was 10, 15 years ago was like totally different, mm. you know? Um, and it's it's based on that whole thing of this is where my thoughts, this is where my beliefs, I expressed them and people were like, but no, that's not how you do things, you know? And through that, you know, I believe I shaped who I am today. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's, there's things that I think back to, like, 15 years ago, you didn't catch me dead saying that or doing <laughs> that, you know. But now it's like, no, I've actually progressed. <laughs> you know, I've I've gone through that process of being in an ugly place, you know, 
been told that's that's not the way to do things to where I am now. Not that I'm the perfect human being, but I'm far better than I was 15 years ago. And it takes that pushback, or if you want to say failing, and then, you know, recalibrating, getting back, you know, and, mm. yeah, progressing. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, stuck with rubbish, you know, is, um, and goes on, it says, make failure as cheap as possible. That's yeah. also very, very vital. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's where it tells the story of um, his son, you know, where he wants, they were saving, or they were trying to teach him how to save, and he bought something that he didn't like, oh, yes. and then now he's like saving up for some trip, and he's almost certain he'll do that, you know. He won't get distracted along the way to get. And I mean, yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I think that was for me one down point when I read that, you know. I felt like I don't think I've made that many cheap mistakes in life. So as a result, I'm having the expensive mistakes, you mm. know. Um, I, I wish I had stepped out earlier in life, like in terms of just getting out of the box, exploring, because, yeah, I think, but yet again, I think maybe this is the right time for me to do that. Yeah, never too late. It, it seems a lot more than it would have when I was little, but it might be cheaper than if yeah. I had experienced the season I am in my life, let's say 10 years down the line. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's very important that we we make, you know, cheap mistakes um yeah yeah and yeah, i think that's for almost anything right mm. like i mean in our field especially software development making cheap mistakes is critical mm. um and it, it's also the idea of um i can't remember exactly how it ties together but um there's the idea of preventative things so there's preventative medicine and stuff mm. but I feel like it was a Y Combinator found, uh, um, investor that I was listening to who who spoke about trying to do things on the left-hand side of the... So, there's a shift-left approach. And so, instead of um, doing things on the far right... So, obviously, this is for generally English-speaking people. Mm. We lead, read from left to right and we do things from from left to right and the idea of shift left which means try and learn those things so try and incorporate whether it's security practices or whether it's just doing general um things in software development doing them earlier on in the development cycle because doing it later on it costs a lot more mm. so take for example there's a security vulnerability now if you find that out before you launch the mm. the product then what can happen is you say oh, okay well we just fixed that thing because you have all the context and you've failed fast you've mm. failed i mean in this case it's failing extremely fast because mm. so um for the non-technical people we have what's called build systems often and they automatically continuous they, it's called continuous integration okay. continuous delivery and these systems, before you release code, they automatically 
build the code and they test the code and make sure that it's it works fine for for certain cases and what people are doing is they're incorporating security practices and that into that build step so it's before it even gets to the release so it's like i say learning extremely quickly so you try and make that release you fail and you realize that there's a security vulnerability then you immediately have the context because you basically finished working on it like maybe an hour before that and then you update the thing to incorporate the new security practice or something like that and then you release it and that idea of of shifting earlier on preventative stuff is also really helpful but the only way you can do that is by trying to learn things as quickly as possible because if you if you are sort of waiting for the results to kind of happen years down the line, then you can't get that rapid cycle because you have to wait for, say, five, 10 years, um, whether it's medicine, software, anything. Um, but yeah, I think it's really helpful to to look at how we can fail fast mm. and not be afraid of it. Yeah, because um, yeah, a lot of people are so afraid. They... So that critical feedback and all of that, if, if you're taking offense to that, mm. if you can learn to not take offense to critical yeah. feedback and be able to sort it into, okay, this person is trying to offend me and it's not the end of the world. They're just being a bit mean. And, oh, that's actually a useful piece of information that I can learn from. Um, also helps a lot. But you have to get used to failing. No, true. I mean, fear of failure is... Uh... It's a real thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's uh, the next final? Unless there's more than three. No, no. There's, there's three. But you can add if you want. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the third story is reaching the South Pole. And it's the idea of slow and steady wins the race. Mm. So he even speaks about what's it? Aesop's fables um, and the hair and stuff like that. So it's a similar story mm. to that. Um and just as a quick preface to it is um, that idea of the the tortoise and the hare. Um, I I had heard that story and you can kind of recite the story very loosely and, and stuff. And it goes back to his point about the teaching and the stories and things like that. That teaching things and especially teaching them in a story form... Mm is extremely powerful mm. because everyone can can teach that story of the hare and the and the tortoise and sort of i guess slowly get the idea of it um yeah so it's just a helpful point of act to the, mm. the idea of stories. i mean yes um there's a whole um story of of saying of um one one person goes quickly and then as a group you go far i don't know if mm. you, it's it's uh yeah a similar yeah. thing that as a group you stick together you probably take the pace of the slowest person and you know but together with encouragement that you go a long way yet if you're alone you can go really fast but once you burn out you like no one to mm. motivate you and all that kind of stuff yeah. and you're done mm. yeah it's yeah. true mm-hmm. okay so reaching the South Pole. 
So again, going to go for the condensed version, which isn't super condensed, yeah. but <laughs> slightly more condensed. So the previous one seemed longer than the, yeah. <laughs> the actual. <laughs> um, okay, so in the early 20th century, as the great exploration reached its peak, the great age of exploration reached its peak, one of the most sought-after goals was to reach the South Pole. Two rival teams, a courageous British group and a determined Norwegian squad, set off on an epic quest to the South Pole. The British team adopted the strategy of pushing themselves to the limit on favorable days and hunkering down on the more challenging ones. In contrast, the Norwegian team chose the steadfast approach of covering 15 miles a day. Come rain or shine, they would stick to the consistent pace of 15 miles a day. The journey to the South Pole was hundreds of miles, but fascinatingly, as the Norwegian team closed in on the pole, that's the team sticking to the 15 miles a day no matter what, mm. they were just 45 miles away from the finish line, so close, with perfect weather, that one would have expected them to push forward in one last hero heroic effort to the pole. Yet, they defied logic and they stuck to their 15 mile a day rule taking three days to cover that final stretch. Astonishingly, though, they still reached the South Pole a full 34 days ahead of their British rivals. But the story doesn't end there. The Norwegians, thanks to their unwavering pace, had enough energy and resilience to make the arduous journey back to their homelands, while the British team, tragically, demoralized by their defeat and out of energy, froze to death on their return. A biographer remarked that the Norwegian team achieved their monumental goal without particular effort. A testament to the power of an effortless pace, serving as a powerful reminder of the importance of steady progress and the wisdom in not doing more today than one can recover from by tomorrow. So yeah, another very helpful story. And I think it's very similar to that um, hare and the tortoise. But it's the thing that makes it extremely powerful for me, for me is that it's a real story of ju just showing even under these extreme conditions and even in a real race that, that was, um, I guess, for a lot of people at that time, especially those explorer type people, it was probably like the pinnacle of their life. Like, mm. I'm going to get to the South Pole. I want to be the first person. And I, I'm sure, I mean, this is what the 20, early 20th century. I'm sure that many, many people had tried before and, and not gotten there. But then just through keeping that consistent pace, not mm. too fast, not too slow. Um, yeah, help them. I think... Um so it seems like I also have like very practical stories in my life regarding someone in these chapters. Mm. But sorry, <clears throat> in terms of the pace one, um, I remember. So I was actually thinking about this this morning. Um, like years ago when I was doing my GCSEs, I used to study in like twenty minute. Gaps. So I'd study for 20 minutes, five minutes break, and like mm. very consistent and very disciplined with that. And um 
in this chapter it talks about the up the upper side or the upper bound you know um yeah. and it's that and which was what the sellers did they had a specific distance they said regardless of what happens we're going to cover this you know um and i believe i subconsciously like adopted that you know i was like very disciplined and like kind of clock in front of me you know hmm. 20 minutes like regardless of where i am out like stop and be like time for a break back and i think it's really important and in different aspects of life that we do that um because it's so easy to tell yourself no i can do with one more hour mm. you know and i know it's bad correlation but it goes back to the compounding that one hour in a week is five hours mm, exactly five extra hours and i mean that's 10 in two weeks 15 in three 20 in a month 20 extra hours to your normal what 40 yeah um 40 hour week that means you're doing 45 and i mean and if you're not being compensated for it the other things that come with it but in turn is within a month you probably burn out because you've put in extra hours than you should have mm. um if you look at it on a daily basis it looks like nothing but it accumulates over time and that goes back th- that in turn means that you're not pacing yourself yeah because come then four weeks down the line you're more tired than someone that's doing the normal 8 to 5 you yeah. know and you wonder why and you just haven't accounted for that extra hour you've been spending working um so it's very important to be disciplined in that regard i mean i i think i suffered from the losing teams <laughs> um you know demise two years ago um I've when from a countless <laughs> you know um where i mean that's the one i can remember mm-hmm. you know so clearly is when lockdown hit um there was no um clear markings of where work starts where work ends and where life starts and yeah. where life ends um just because you know I was in the same space you know working living and everything and when 5 pm comes and there's something I was working on I'd be like you know I just finish it. there's yeah. no commute home like I'm already home next thing I'm sitting there in the dark and I'm like that's an hour 30 minutes and you do that continuously for for like a month or so you end up you know wondering why am i so tired you mm. know but you haven't accounted for those extra hours you've been working and i mean ever since then uh, i've told myself that work is work home life is home life that's why yeah. whenever people ask me but why do you go to the office every day it's, it helps me that separation create that separation mm. you know not that i would uh, 
at days when I work at home, I enjoy working at home. Mm-hmm. But I just like the discipline that gives me that the moment I leave the office to go home, I know that I'm done with work. Yeah. You know, it gives me that proper separation, you know, mm-hmm. and that is me creating a pace for myself to say I work eight hours a day. I yeah. go eight hours mm-hmm. and that's it, you know. So, yeah, uh, it's very important to to pace yourself, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> there's lots of ways of doing that um, and it works in different ways for yeah. different people. And so for the office hours thing, um, for some people, they put on formal clothes if they're working from home mm. and that's their sort of divider. Mm. But it's important to have that divider, mm. whether it's a room or a space, it's to tie these um, things to, okay, I'm going to start this process now. I'm finishing this process. Mm. So um, Cal Newport, uh, I can't remember what he calls it, but it's something like a shutdown ritual mm. where at the end of the workday, I don't know if it's in his book, Deep Work or where it is, mm. but it's a topic that he generally talks about where at the end of his workday, he has a ritual where he he will verbally say something. Mm. I can't remember uh, if it's like... I, and should, I should say um, Greg also has a similar ritual. He mm. does mention it. Of how yeah, maybe he, even talks. He talks about yeah. it. So it, for him, he calls out the time loudly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and it seems like a ridiculous thing mm. to do, but it helps. If, if something like that helps you definitively mm. say, okay, cool, I'm done with this mm. now. And then you move on to the next thing, whether it's uh, family time or making dinner or going for a run or doing something mm. like that. Even going and chilling on the TV, you mm. don't have to be doing some yeah. overproductive thing. Um, yeah, having that clear separation helps a lot. Um, yeah, there's um, touching back on what you said earlier as well. So, for steady, consistent progress, we need to find that right range, and we need to have the upper and the lower bound. Mm. Um, so it's not it's not you were speaking about the upper bound which is helpful to say this is when the cutoff Mm. is but the lower bound is also helpful Mm. Um, so there's a quote in the book that says finding the right range keeps us moving at a steady pace so we can make consistent progress with the lower bound that should be high enough to keep us feeling motivated but low enough that we can still achieve it even on the days when we're dealing with unexpected chaos and then the upper bound should be high enough to constitute good progress, but not so high as to leave us feeling exhausted. As we get the, into this rhythm, the progress begins to flow and we're able to make effortless action or take effortless action. So I think having that lower bound, because the way that I think about it is like almost a car. So I don't know if this analogy will hold up well, <laughs> but almost with a car, when you, you start the car, Um, If you're going too slowly, the car is literally going to stall, right? Um, But if you're going too fast, like there's a certain point where you actually, you you can't go much faster without just revving the engine to its max. Mm. And that's not going to make the engine very happy, Mm. um, especially over the long term. And so I think finding that sort of middle ground is always very helpful. Um, and you, they, I can't remember if it's in this book, but there's the idea of the writer yeah, and the writer finding, um, 
so often writers and and uh, the more artsy type people talk about finding inspiration and then there's a saying that goes um i need inspiration to write and inspiration strikes at seven o'clock every morning <laughs> um and the the joke behind that is that the the writer and this goes for for pretty much anything the writer in this case is trying to say well at seven o'clock or whatever time it is that's when i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna start writing and i'll write for two three hours um and that's my block of time and if you just sit there patiently and do your thing then inspiration will strike over time and and you'll you'll figure out how to write and do things um but if you just sort of chaotically like, okay, I'm feeling good today, mm. then you write a ton. What ends up happening is you go and write a ton and then you you don't feel like it the next mm. day because it's, you you know, I worked so hard yesterday and mm. I'm tired mm. and this and that. But if you just consistently do, again, almost anything, mm. investing, writing, reading, studying, mm. stuff builds up over time. Mm. Um, yeah, so... Having that steady pace is, yeah, super vital. Yeah. Mm. No, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, I think it's... It's that discipline we need, yeah? Mm. <laughs> we need that discipline to say, this is... Again, as you said, the law and up, but this is the least I will do you know, to be happy and this is the worst. And like when you get to like cut off, you know, put your foot down, be be firm with yourself. Mm. I think uh, that's one thing we, we try and be like, ah, just for today. And yeah. again, we do not stop to think what's the effect of that in the long run. Mm. Yeah, And it's not just the discipline. So often people might talk about the discipline of starting mm. and starting is really most of the time the hard part mm. but if you get to starting maybe you're someone who continuously starts things and, and does things but then they they sort of burn out often mm. it's not just the discipline mm. of starting vital though that is it's also the discipline of finishing yeah saying so this is when my cutoff oh, point, point is like you were saying mm. so i think it's those two bounds mm. that you need to try and get into place that yeah. lower and that upper bound and saying, this is when I'm going to do this, the stuff that I need to do. And beyond that, that's fine. That's fine. Tomorrow's problem or however long's problem. But you you set those boundaries. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a military mantra that they also mention, which I really like. Because it's a super condensed version of it. Mm. It doesn't quite capture the lower and the upper bound. But I still think it's really useful. Mm. Um, and the military mantra is, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Um, and it just, every time I think about it, I'm like, yeah, mm. there's something there that is, it's, if people were to realize it and really sort of internalize it, mm. it's, it's the same with the Aesop's fable of the, the tortoise and the hare going back to that, where if people really internalize that story and you say, if I really do just take slow and steady progress, mm. if I don't try and um become the smartest person overnight or if i don't try and become the richest person overnight and i mean i wouldn't even try and become the smartest or the richest person because i think that that's not really what life is about mm. but it's helpful to 
and it's interesting to to try and achieve those mm. things um but if you try and achieve them overnight it's yeah. it's not going to happen but if you just take slow and steady steps towards it at that consistent pace mm. you find the pace that works for you mm. um then you will achieve remarkable things yeah. like you'll look back and you'll be like oh wow, oh, wow. that's that's quite something. Mm. And it's not because you're an incredible person or anything like that. It's just because taking those slow and steady step. steps really, it's, mm. it is how anything in life makes progress. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, in conclusion, I don't know if there's anything else here. Uh, I have a little bit of a concluding thought, but I don't know no, if you no. want to try and wrap up. Yeah, wrap up. Okay, so um, my concluding thought was I was thinking about a while ago I had this change in perspective. So um, I was originally thinking, you know, yo, it'd be so great to get out of this work-life cycle where I'm just like everything I do is work and you just got to keep on grinding through the work day and, and throughout most of my university career, I think I was trying to be successful, not because I just enjoyed the process of it, mm. but because I actually just wanted to get to this point of being like super rich and um, retired and like just do whatever I want and, and everything like that. And at some point, and I'm very thankful for this, mm. I had this perspective shift of life isn't actually really about trying to escape work. Life is actually, work is just, it's a wonderful part of life actually. Um, but we often try so hard to do things and we feel like we need to put in all this effort in order to achieve things. And effort is required, but it's that idea of consistent effort. And and if we look back at that, trying to to pace ourselves well what we actually find is we can end up in that flow state. Going back to the example of the writer, inspiration strikes at seven mm. o'clock. And if you can get into that sort of rhythm of doing things and pacing yourself well, if it's running a sprint or writing something or creating some program, mm. or whatever it might be doing, some painting, some work of art, if you can just get into that steady, slow rhythm of progress you can actually learn to enjoy work mm. and like really enjoy it because the if if you think about what are the meaningful things in life, we we think, oh, you know, it would be so great to just go back to that retired thing. Mm. It'd be so great to retire and just chill. But actually doing things is very meaningful. Mm. Um, and it brings a lot of meaning to us as human beings. And if you're on a very long holiday break, you'll realize that over time, it's like, okay, let me just give me something to do. Uh, and that's because doing things is meaningful and doing things for yourself is meaningful, but doing things for others is possibly most meaningful. And so if you can try and in your work life and in just life in general, look at how you can do things and doing them for others, not doing them to try and get to this new position mm. or this or that, but just enjoy doing mm. it and take slow and steady steps and don't worry about the 
client breathing down mm. your throat. It's, and it's easier said than done, granted. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about the client breathing down your throat. Say, okay, well, this is what I can do. Yeah. I know my lower bound and I know my upper bound. Mm. I'm not going to go below that lower mm. bound because I know then I'll stall and mm. I'll just get super lazy. And that's not a nice place to be either. Yeah. But I'm also not going to go so fast that I end up choking. And um, as he says a while back in the book, I'm not going to do more today than I can recover mm. from by tomorrow. I'm not going to do more this week than I can recover from in the week. Because if you do do that, you just yeah. burn out. And so I think that perspective shift was very helpful in me being able to say, you know, I can actually enjoy mm. what I'm doing and do things like this recording the podcast and doing things like that, that at a past point in my life, I would have considered, okay, I need to do this thing in order to be successful mm-hmm. and in order to be someone who's doing good stuff mm. and all of this and become wealthy or, and now I'm like, you know, it's fine. Mm. Um, I'm just going to do the things that I enjoy doing. I'm going to do them at a consistent pace. Mm, And it's actually a wonderful thing. Mm. Um, So, yeah. In fact, not just work is the straining thing, Mm. but it's actually something that is meaningful. Yeah. Um, And it can be effortless if... uh, if we take the right approaches. I think just to add on on that, you know, um, I remember, I think it was two years ago, I was having a conversation with my previous boss about what it it is that drives us to do what we do. You know, I think, again, (laughs) this thing of not defining stuff, but in our conversation, we spoke about how, you know, there's just something about making a difference and knowing that mm. you've made a difference. And in the in this context, it was like through code, you know, like you make a piece of software more efficient somewhere and you save in someone two minutes, you know. if mm. And, you know, saving someone two minutes today seems small, but in a year, like, I mean... I'm sure we work for less than 365 days, but, you know, that times two, you know, that's 700 minutes Mm. in a year that you're saving someone from. Mm. Um, I mean, in the book, it talks about the whole drawer situation where the guy opens his drawer, picks out something, but struggles to close it every single time, you know, um, sort of taking the time to just mm. fix it so that it doesn't happen again. He was happy to struggle for two minutes. Well, yeah, it was like struggling for 30 seconds Yeah, versus that like two minutes to just fix the issue. Just fix the issue, you mm. know. Um, he was happy to s- struggle, you yeah. know. Um, but like, like I said, that time compounds, you know. It's 30 seconds today, but, you know, in a week's time, that's what? two and a half minutes you've lost, you know, mm. and that's more than the time it would have taken him to, to fix yeah. whatever issue it is. So, yeah, it's just about, you know, at the end of the day, you know, critically thinking about what it is that you can change to make your life much easier. I mean, mm. that's what 
we all want we want things to be effortless and yes it takes an initial work to be put in but the residual results i think are priceless at the end of the day um mm. yeah we we really need to get in the habit of sitting down defining and knowing what the outcome is and setting the processes in in place to help you i mean there's a whole section of automate if you know that yeah. there's something that you do every single day think of ways of automating that um i mean i think atomic habits talks about and he touches about it briefly on how if there's certain money you want saved every single mm. month create an automatic debit order that sends you know that amount to your savings account you know yeah. it's the monday i mean <laughs> it's so funny i mean reading that i was like it's so interesting how all our debit orders are are on stuff that make us use this lightly but regress financially because it will be paying that bill paying mm. that bill. i mean some bills and like medical aid yeah. but it's it's so against towards that but no one actually sits up to say I want to save 1000 rand every single month and have an automatic debit order or mm. transfer to say every single month I'll be disciplined to have 1000 sent to my savings account you know but yet with the other things we we've made them so important that they need to be debit orders yeah. but happy to so, have that Netflix subscription <laughs> you know oh, yeah. but it's you can save that same 300 Oh, what? How much is that? Yeah, like two hundred bucks. Like that, but yeah. I mean, if you really think about it, that's two hundred bucks for twelve months. It's like two thousand four hundred. I mean, that's not nothing. That's not nothing. You know, that's money you could do a lot with later down the line. So yeah. we we need to get in the habit of adjusting our lives, you know, accordingly, so that things seem seamless and effortless around us. Um, yeah. And also change your perspective. Uh, I mean, at the end of the book, he talks about that. You know, instead yeah. of um, wallowing, being stressed about the daughter situation, they decided to change their perspective that they will enjoy life. Yeah, will sing. Um, and I mean, that's something I'm trying to apply to my life. That I work too hard <laughs> not not to have fun. Mm. You know, if I can, I would do it. Uh, if it's within my bounds, which is financially, time-wise, I'll do it. Um, I think it's very important, you know, to, again, clearly define your purpose or identify what your purpose is. Like you you were sharing now, like to you it was more of what can I do to be wealthy? You know, everything has to yeah. be you know, uh, an end goal or something has to make you Poor rich, young James. You know, uh, but now it's like you've changed that, like, what makes me happy? Mm. You know, what do I enjoy doing? Um, and and it's important. I mean, even the work we do, I mean, I enjoy the work I do. Um, the people can sometimes, you know, make it difficult, but I'm happy to work up and develop software mm. you know i enjoy that um it's just now trying to navigate how do i 
manage all the noise that comes with that uh, that be you know how do i push back when things are a bit unrealistic you know just learning those different things to get along to again make life effortless i think it's very important and mm. can take you a long way um yeah so those are just my concluding thoughts yeah so i mean i think just to sort of wrap up it's taking those things like defining what done is um to not be afraid of failing mm. and to just continuously try and iterate on the things that you're doing um and then to take things at that right pace mm. if you can do that then you can end up in that effortless state effortless action effortless results yeah great book definitely yeah. think people should read it uh i am pretty sure that i'll read it again if i <laughs> can find the time um yeah cool definitely would recommend mm. awesome thanks cool. peter thanks james until next time until next time <laughs>